0: This is the GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Don Shelby, and welcome to Earth Intelligence. And our guest today is Dr. Katherine Hayhoe, an atmospheric scientist and principal author of the Fourth National Climate Assessment, which had to fight its way through the science-denying Trump administration. With us, as usual, is Joe Robertson, founder of GeoVersive, which you can learn more about at GeoVersive.net. He's the director of the Citizens Climate International and lead strategist for Resilience Intel Climate Smart Finance Initiative. And Myra Jackson, who was intimately involved in the development of the UN 17 Sustainable Goals, the SDG, she's a diplomat of the biosphere and remains a UN representative and focal point on climate change. And she is foremost an expert on harmony with nature and the rights of nature. And more formally, Catherine is the Political Science Endowed Professor in Public Policy and Public Law at the Department of Political Science and Director of the Climate Center. And she's Associate in the Public Health Program of the Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences at Texas Tech University in Lubbock. And she was named Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. Welcome, Dr. Hale, once again.
1: Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Uh, Catherine, you've written that uh, climate change is a, quote, threat multiplier.
1: What do you mean by that? Well, the only reason we really care about climate change is because of how it impacts us and every living thing on this planet. If the only thing that happened as a result of digging up and burning coal and gas and oil was that the average temperature of the planet increased by one or two or even three or five degrees, and that was the only thing that happened, it wouldn't really matter. But why we care about climate change is because it takes everything we already care about today, beginning with the sustainable development goals, beginning with poverty, hunger, access to clean water, including gender equity, access to basic health care, education. It takes all of these issues and it makes them worse. The way I picture climate change is as the hole in the bucket. We're trying to fill a bucket to fix, like I said, poverty, access to education, uh, to cure diseases. And we're pouring everything we have into this bucket, but it's got a hole in the bottom. And the hole is getting bigger and bigger over time. And that hole is climate change. So that's why we care about climate change, because we can't fix anything else that's wrong with this world. And in fact, our problems will only multiply with the impacts of a changing climate.
2: Catherine, I wonder if, you know... Recently, you've been talking about how climate is a justice issue, Mm. and you've just shared how it moves us backwards and makes things harder in all these important areas for human well-being. Um, Can you tell us why this is, for you, a moral issue?
1: Well, the reason... I am a climate scientist is because it's a moral issue. So I I love science. I grew up with a dad who was a science teacher. One of my first memories is finding out how to locate the Andromeda galaxy through binoculars. And I was planning to be an astrophysicist until I took a class um, serendipitously to finish my astrophysics degree. And that class happened to be in climate science. And that's where I learned that climate change is not only an environmental issue that environmentalists work on and the rest of us wish them well, Climate change is an everything issue. It is a human issue. It affects not only every aspect of the planet on which we live, it affects every humanitarian issue and crisis that we have. And so for me as a Christian believing that we are not only called to have responsibility over every living thing on this planet as it says in the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 chapter 1, but also believing that we are to care for the least of these, the the poor, the vulnerable, the least fortunate here, where we live, as well as on the other side of the world, when I learned that climate change is actively affecting them and actively harming them, and its effects will continue to multiply, I felt like, how can I not do everything I can to help with this issue? Because surely, if everyone understood how urgent it is, we would fix it, wouldn't we? And unfortunately, that was 25 years ago.
0: Catherine Myra is... Uh, deeply steeped in indigenous faith and how that relationship of those people affect the way they think about nature. And you've done a good job in explaining how your Christian faith and in the Judeo-Christian complex, that God's creation is something very special, which uh, a lot of people call nature. How does faith inform your understanding of the subject of climate change and those who would fight against the knowledge and deny the
3: facts, mm-hmm. Myra, can you put that better for me? I actually think you did quite well uh, in in approaching that question. And you know, I think probably what uh, what Catherine can help us with is that view of connection mm-hmm. and relationship. That comes with the indigenous worldview. And actually, as you mentioned in, in, in referencing Genesis, but we go right to Noah being called to gather every creepy crawling thing in pairs from all of creation to come on the ark. If that wasn't a signal to us that there was uh, relevance to everything in existence, what else?
1: Absolutely. So often we think about issues from our own cultural perspective without any awareness of how thick the glasses are that we're wearing. And so exposure to and conversation with people who come from different perspectives is so important because it's like the traditional fable of the blind man and the elephant. We might have a good understanding of the left rear foot of the elephant based on our culture, our tradition, our understanding, our science. But uh, another group might understand the ears or the trunk or the back or the tail much better. And so I feel very privileged to be able to be part of the Department of Interior's Climate Science Adaptation Centers, which work with Native American tribes to look at conservation, at sustainability, at management of land, water, and air, and ecosystems on natural lands. So we have the Chickasaw and Choctaw nations as full partners in our climate center. And of course, those being nations located in Oklahoma... They have already endured massive climatic upheaval through either forcible or coercive transportation from their native lands to Oklahoma um, and have already had to change everything from the food that they eat to the traditional uh, plants and animals that they use. Um, But through it all, They have a concept, which I'm sure you can speak to more, Myra, that concept of um, that the Iroquois voice so beautifully in seven generations, that we are really here not just on behalf of ourselves at this time, but we are part of a continuous line. Of people who who we truly believe have a special role in, in having responsibility over this planet on which we live. So I think that bringing in those diverse perspectives is very important—from indigenous peoples around the world, from different cultures around the world, and even from from the voices of women and children. So often over the last few decades, the dialogue in science and in climate change and in international negotiations has been primarily that between men. And bringing in women in terms of um, Cristiana Figueres, of course, who shepherded the Paris Agreement to its completion, uh, bringing in uh, many other unique voices actually leads to more robust and all encompassing solutions that are good for all of us.
0: Catherine, you were awarded, and uh, it's a great distinction. It may not be top of mind for people who are thinking about climate change, but one of the greatest of all time in this field. Stephen Schneider, and you were given Mm -hmm. the Stephen H. Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication. And I applaud you, of course, for that. But the question that I have is, how do you communicate climate science, the facts, with those people who either through uh, politics or an ignorance of science or a belief that the Almighty would not let any of this happen to us, how do you communicate to people who deny the science?
1: Well, I do a lot of that, as you know, Dawn, and probably our two most popular global weirding episodes are about exactly that. So I do a PBS digital series on YouTube called Global Weirding that anyone can find if they just Google that. And our two most watched episodes are, first of all, if I just tell people the facts, surely they'll change their minds, right? And the second one is, what does the Bible say about climate change? So, so often when we bring up climate change in the United States, the objections that pe- that surface immediately are in two categories. Category number one is science sounding objections. Like, isn't it just a natural cycle? Or it's been warmer before? Or I heard that volcanoes produce more heat-trapping gases than people. The second category of objections that we also hear pretty frequently in the U.S. are religious-y sounding objections, like if God is in control, how could this happen, or the world's going to end anyways. Why did I make such a point of calling these science C and religious E? It's because they aren't actually science, and they aren't even theological either. They are inaccurate from both a scientific and a theological perspective, How is it that we're using such invalid zombie arguments? I think zombie is a good term because they've been um, shown that they're false long time ago, yet (laughs) they continue to stagger along. Why is it that we keep using these excuses? It's because they are excuses. That's exactly what they are. They are excuses, palatable excuses, to cover our real objections. And here's the thing, although it's good and it's important to have short responses to how do we know it's not a natural cycle and how do we know it's not volcanoes and, you know, if God is in control, how could this happen? It's good to have short responses to those objections, but those short responses or longer responses or full-on multi-day discussions or arguments on those topics They won't change people's minds. Why? Because those aren't the real problems. We will be like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. Or, you know, we'll be talking to, you know, the Wizard of Oz, whereas the real person's behind the screen. The real problem people have is they don't want to fix it. They have been told, or they believe, that the only way to fix it is to destroy the economy, to adopt liberal ideas, to let the United Nations run the world, to destroy jobs, to let China and India get out ahead of the U.S., to take away their trucks, stakes, and not have children anymore. That's what people believe are the solutions. Um, Or people believe also that we're just helpless, that we could do everything we could, but it would never fix it. So here's what happens. Our defense mechanisms kick in. And often our defense mechanisms are really subconscious. They're not even conscious. Our defense mechanisms kick in because we don't want to be bad people. And if we say, yes, there's a real problem, but I don't want to fix it, that would make us a bad person. Our defense mechanisms also kick in when we don't think there's anything we can do because we can't sustain the anxiety long term of feeling like there's this huge global problem and somebody told me to change a light bulb. I mean, obviously, that's not going to fix it. So there's nothing I can do. So I just kind of check out. So our defense mechanisms are to come up with and adopt the sciency and religiously sounding objections that we are fed by thought leaders who we trust and whose values we believe that we share, because they help us to cover our feelings of fear, guilt, inadequacy, and our personal sense of, well, I like my life just fine, and I don't want anybody messing with it. Thank you very much. So what is the solution, then? The solution is to go past the windmill, to peek behind the curtain. And in our communication with people, which I talk about extensively in my TED Talk, we have to tackle the real problem, which is that people don't understand how it matters to them here and now and what we can do to fix it. So talking about solutions is much more effective than arguing over the science.
0: One of the things that I found helpful in discussing this with people who profess a uh, Judeo-Christian ethic is to liken nature and what climate change is doing to what we know as nature by saying that, so creation is not good enough for you? What God created Ah. is not good enough for you? That you wish to destroy it? Isn't that like sticking a sharp stick in the eye of God? And it does set them back a minute. Do you ever use that kind of argument?
1: Um, I, I typically don't go, um, g- don't go immediately for that. but But I do take a similar approach because what you're doing, Don, is exactly what we need to do. You're starting with a shared value. The value that you're starting with implicit to what you just said is that Christians believe that what God created is good because the Bible says that. And so you're starting with the shared perspective that what God created is good, and that the concept of stewardship is essential to who we are. That's kind of the subtext to your argument there. So once you're talking to somebody who shares those values, you can speak to those values. And that resonates with them very strongly in a way that simply speaking to the facts of the science or speaking from a very different values perspective does. Yes.
3: What what a conversation this is already. Uh, and, you know, it gets right to the heart of the questions I'm sure many people ask you all the time, how do we talk about climate change? And yet, you know, what came to my mind again was that moment three years ago in the AGU meeting, um, the American Geophysical Union meeting, where scientists were pleading for help. How can we do a better job talking about science and tell our stories in a way that people really can, can understand how to take action or even care about it at all? And you've done great work in that regard, Catherine, and this dialogue gets to some of the heart of that. Uh, do you think we're making progress in that arena now? I
1: think we are because scientists are the ones who know the most about the problem. But we scientists, like everybody really, we communicate in the way that works best for us. And so just as I pointed out that Dawn's conversation would begin with the implicit assumption that we both believe that creation was good and that humans were stewards, scientists often begin their conversations with people with the implicit assumption that science is both fascinating and true. And whatever science says should inform our opinions rather than our opinions informing science. That's the way scientists operate. But unfortunately, it's not the way the world operates. In fact, when we look at climate change, the number one predictor of whether people agree with 150 years of science that says that climate is changing, humans are responsible, and the impacts are serious. It is not how smart we are. It's not how much science we know. It's not how educated we are. It is where we fall on the political spectrum. So I believe that the biggest advances that have happened in the last 10 or 15 years in the area of climate change have not been in the physical sciences. They've been in the social sciences, in understanding cultural and cognitive biases Understanding messaging and framing, understanding people's opinions and even the neurological processes by which our brains generate defense mechanisms. So we literally don't even listen to somebody if we don't think that we agree with them. And physical scientists, the ones of us who study climate change, we started to recognize that there's actually a science to communication and people are starting to be much more open to different ways of communicating. And I do many talks at AGU and elsewhere um, to scientists and have many discussions. With fellow scientists about how we can begin our conversations with a true shared value, which, if somebody's a scientist, we already do that instinctively. But if they're not a scientist, we have to figure out where to begin that conversation. And it often won't be with an assumption that what science is, says is right, it might be with the fact that we are both parents or we both really enjoy. Doing things outdoors, or we both have military experience, or we both live in the same place and we care about that location, or we're both people of faith. So, scientists are starting to recognize that we have to communicate in a different way on highly politically polarized topics because today, even the simple statement that climate is changing is interpreted by people outside the scientific realm, not as a statement of fact, but as a political opinion.
2: What happens if we don't have access? To science, if we don't have access to truth. And under the previous administration, the flow of scientific information was significantly disrupted for a lot of the population. Um, you said that this is an everything crisis, and it is already imposing serious harm on defenseless people, on other species. Um, in his inaugural address, President Biden talked about uh, Augustine, who said that a nation is a community united by common objects of love, and he's talking about values there. Augustine also argued that without access to evidence and understanding, it's not possible to make a truly virtuous choice. You can't know you're doing the right thing unless you know what you're doing. When people are denied access to science and to understanding of what's happening and to understanding of this everything crisis, they're actually denied ways of acting on their own values. Um, do you see that as one of the problems, um, that we're grappling with as we, as we try to essentially rev up an entire national, uh, you know, agenda to, to tackle this crisis that, that people are, are being denied the right to express their values in a true and honest way?
1: Oh, 100 percent. In fact, I would go slightly further than you did. Not only are people being denied the information that they need to make accurate choices and form accurate opinions, they're being deliberately lied to. So let me just give you one example that's current in the news today. Um, Everybody is talking, politicians are talking about how President Biden will be canceling the Keystone XL pipeline and how there are all these clean energy initiatives. And so politicians are throwing around all kinds of very large numbers of how many jobs are going to be lost. Well, what they're not saying is how many incredibly much larger numbers of jobs are created by these initiatives. And in some cases, they're even using false numbers. Like for the Keystone XL pipeline, it's estimated there would be 11,000 temporary jobs, 50 um, sorry, 35 permanent jobs, and some of those 35 permanent jobs would be in Canada. <laughs> and so, but you don't hear people like Ted Cruz saying 35 jobs are going to be lost with the Keystone XL pipeline. You hear them trumpeting enormous numbers with not presenting the other side. And then with Christians in the United States, where climate denial is rampant through the Protestant and the Catholic churches. Christians are being deliberately lied to by people who they trust. They are being told information that is not only factually incorrect, it is theologically incorrect. And so that information is preventing people from not only forming their opinions based on the reality of the way the world works, it's actually actively preventing them from forming opinions that are consistent with who they believe they are at their very core in terms of their personal identity. And I was just reading a article today um, that is not surprising, but still horrifying. talking about how conspiracy theories are rampant throughout churches in the United States. And I've seen this myself, conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines, about COVID itself, and of course, about climate change. People are being fed this disinformation, which leads them to make poor choices in their own lives, in their families' lives, as well as to have opinions that are not based on fact and opinions that do not reflect who they truly are and what they truly believe, what their core values are.
0: I was in a conversation with Mike Mann the other day, and uh, you know Mike very well, that his effort over the last five years has been toward optimism and hope, but based primarily in the hope that there would ever come an administration that would take climate change seriously. In the Biden administration, do you find hope in that?
1: I do find hope in what people are doing and that hope has to be active. We can't just sit and wait for it to arrive in our inbox or at the door of our minds. We have to go out and look for it and I find hope in what Technology is being invented by incredibly creative people. I find hope in what children and young people are doing. I find hope in what elders and senior citizens are doing. I find hope in all the people and citizens' climate lobby lobbying for bipartisan solutions. I find hope in the many churches and religious organizations that are calling for change as part of their moral fabric. And I do find some hope in politics that takes the science seriously. But I think one of the greatest mistakes people make is to pin all their hopes. Hope on a president. Because the federal government is certainly a large piece of climate action, but it's by no means the only piece or the sufficient piece. We need everybody on board. And so that is why as individual people, using our voices to advocate for change at every level is absolutely essential because working together, finding like-minded people, sharing our vision of what a better future would look like, that ultimately is what gives us hope.
0: I want everyone to look up uh, Catherine Hayhoe on YouTube, and I want you to watch everything that she has done in climate weirding, as well as her TED Talk, which is one of the most uh, popular of all the TED Talks that have been produced. And I want to thank you very much, uh, Professor, for being with us today on Earth Intelligence. You've added some intelligence to Earth during your period of time on it. And
1: thank you very much. Thank you, Don. It's been great chatting with you all.
3: Listeners, stay with us. We're not finished, and and we certainly hope. I'm just putting an invitation out there to have, to have Catherine back with us soon.
2: <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Um, this This discussion is why we're doing this. Um, I hope you'll come back.
0: You can find more on geoversy.net about all of us, and you can also find all of the podcasts at EarthIntel.org. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening to this podcast, and we'll be with you next week. I'm Don Shelby. Thank you for joining us.